Good evening, everyone, and welcome to It Happened to Me, um, Pan America um, presented with The Guardian. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about um, personal stories. The way that personal stories are placed in the public sphere um, are, can be one of the most powerful and transformative acts, liberating the storyteller and giving the listener a deeper and more empathetic understanding. When the stories are life-altering, even life-threatening, the effect is even more profound. Witnessing genocide or war crimes, fleeing your homeland as an economic or sexual refugee, and in the era of Me Too, recounting episodes of, uh, of rape or other forms of sexual abuse. Tonight we have seven writers from around the world giving powerful and very personal testimony about what happened to them. I'm very uh, proud and pleased to present um, tonight Romeo Oriogun, Scholastique Mukasonga, Grace Talusan, um, Paul Tran, um, Paitim Stavlikchi, and uh, Shirio Ito. Um, Edouard Louis, unfortunately, is not able to make it tonight. Um, so I just want to bring up first um, Paitim who's going to be um, reading, uh, reading from his work. Um. Uh, Paitim was born in 1990. He's a Finnish Kosovan novelist. He moved from Kosovo to Finland with his family when he was just two years old. He's currently a PhD candidate at the University of Helsinki. His first book, My Cat Yugoslavia, won the Helsingin Sanomat uh, Literature Prize for a best debut novel. And his follow-up, Crossing, uh, won the Toiskonin Literature, uh, Literature Prize. He is also the 2018 recipient of the Helsinki Writer of the Year Award. Please join me in welcoming Paitin. Hey, thank you, Amana. Uh, it's an thank you to Penn. Thank you to all of you who came here tonight. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you and with such a such wonderful fellow fellow writers. So, I'm going to read you short excerpts, uh, flashes uh, from my from my two novels, and um, what I'm going to read to you next is something that has actually happened to me. And these are real scenes from people and attitudes from my and my parents' life in Finland, where I grew up queer in a refugee family that fled the Yugoslav wars in the beginning of the 90s. During my upbringing, I confronted a lot of racism. And uh, from very early on, I started uh, suffering from internalized racism as well, because um, the stories that the media in Finland would tell about the place I came from were really violent and restless and made me a representative of, of that world. I have no shame in admitting that for the majority of my li life I have accepted that the violence I've confronted because I've been too, too scared to stand for what is right. I think that this applies to the most of us. We tend to adjust to oppression more often than resist it. 
defending yourself sometimes requires just too much courage and strength. But writing fiction has, has helped me be brave, I guess, but <laughs> I refuse to say that what I've been through in life has somehow made me stronger or triumphant, like many believe. I'm hoping to take you back in time to some really defining moments of my life by reading first sections of my debut novel, My Cat Yugoslavia. The protagonist in this book is a queer immigrant in Finland and falls in love with a racist, homophobic, human-sized cat. <laughs> and my second book is a story about two teenage boys who flee their home country in search of a better life. The cat said that most immigrants are stupid and brash and that when they walk past you, the smell is enough to knock you out. Try to teach them something, but they'll never learn. Give them a job and they'll steal your money. Give them an apartment and they'll trash it, though they don't ha even have to pay it for themselves, said the cat sternly. Good God, he continued contemplatively, assuming a truly bizarre position. One paw on his hip so that his fur, no fur now looked like a tall skirt, while other paw fumbled blindly at the air in front of him, making him a great furry sight in front of me. If it was up to me, I'd ship the troublemakers back where they came from. Me too, I said, even though I didn't agree with him. Gaze. I don't much like gays, the cat said. I was astounded because we were in a gay bar. <laughs> when I asked the cat why he didn't like gays, he explained he had nothing against homosexuality per se, just gays. Before I could point out that people usually liked gays, but not homosexuality, <laughs> the cat continued. Just look at that, how repulsive. Men's hands don't move through the air like that, and men don't talk the way women talk, and men don't wear such tight tops or wiggle their bottoms like that, like a prostitute, a whore. The cat snapped so loudly that the dancers turned to look at us. Christ alive and sex between men is even more disgusting, unnatural through and through. Horrid, absolutely horrid, he declared. Yes, I think you are right, I mumbled. That would hardly be a surprise, the cat said, wallowing in self-satisfaction. He smugly stretched out his paws and gave a brazen smile. Then the cat assured me that his opinions of gays wasn't based on mere hearsay, but on bitter personal experience, for he had once met two gays. <laughs> he had been backcombing his luxuriant fur in the bathroom of a local restaurant when two gay men had cornered him. According to the cat, the, man, the men marched up to him, stood on either side of him, and looked at his handsome flanks and shiny tail as they might a piece of meat. And the cat had felt so objectified that he'd been forced to stop his preening and cover up his sweet curvature. <laughs> Why have you got such a crooked nose, they asked. Why is your hair so black, your eyebrows so thick? Why, why are you walking in worn-out shoes? Can't you afford to buy new ones? You wear that same jacket every day. Are you poor? Are you a refugee? They shoved me between them, hit me, and laughed. And one of them spat on my forehead. 
and the spittle trickled down my face, and I didn't dare wipe it away. Wipe it away and you're dead, they said. Wipe it and you're dead, you fucking parasite refugee. Do everyone a favor and kill yourself. Go jump off a building, please. Starting over in a new country is perdition. You can't imagine how terrible it is when you can't speak the language. You can't talk to anybody or tell them what you're feeling. They don't want you here, but you still want them to accept you. And how horrible it is to watch as other people simply go on with their lives while you are stuck, wrapped in see-through plastic, in the wrong language, the wrong skin. You can't imagine how shameful it feels, though there's nothing you can do about it, and how infuriating that shame can be. So infuriating that you feel like bashing your head against the wall and knocking over statues, punch punching someone in the face and stealing their handbag because you are too helpless to do anything else. In the asylum center, we were assigned feeding times like dogs. They said food would be available between six and seven. You can't believe how humiliating it is to walk up to a hatch at a certain time to fetch the disgusting food they had prepared for us. They decided when we ate and what we ate and when we had showers, and we were given strange people's clothes to wear, shoes with someone else's sweat in them, shirts yellowed at the armpits and trousers ripped at the crotch. And like prisoners, we were allocated an area where we were allowed to use. And the most laughable part of it, it is that despite all this, I wanted nothing more than to be like them I wished that by putting on their clothes, I would change and become them, that the smell of the clothes I was given would become my scent, too, though all the while I hated them with all my heart. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Paitim. Um, next up, we have um, Grace Talusan. Grace was born in the Philippines and raised in New England. She holds a BA from Tufts University and an MFA in writing from the University of California, Irvine. She, te she teaches at Grub Street and Tufts in Boston. Her first book, The Body Papers, won the Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing in Nonfiction. Please welcome me in joining Grace Talusan. Thank you. I'm so honored to be part of this festival and to be reading with these brave writers. I'm going to read a section from my book that I'll probably never read in public again, but I want to read it um, with these writers here. Um, I never received any justice for crimes that were committed against me, and so perhaps this reading and this book is a form of testimony. During my childhood, I knew implicitly how dangerous it was to tell on my grandfather. A story could get you killed, whether you were the person the story was about or the storyteller. My parents would often tell me to be careful of what I said because even the walls have ears. You could not take a story back once it had been told. Even though I didn't know the precarious immigration situation my family was in, I didn't trust authorities, law enforcement, or the justice system. I was afraid that once the story was out of my control, anything could happen. A rumor could destroy an entire clan. 
you would be shunned, and no one would want to do business with you. I knew that my story was not mine alone, but that it would impact my blood relations too. It was the only way I could feel powerful at the time, to know that I had a, the power to tell a story and to choose to withhold it. One day, while I was playing with my brother, we stuck out our tongues at each other. The tips of our tongues touched accidentally. I said, ew, and then we laughed. I think that was the first night my grandfather came to my bed. He never spoke much to me, so I remember what little he vocalized over the years. Right before he stuck his tongue in my mouth that first night, waking me from a deep sleep, he said, I know you like this. This was the story I told myself at seven years old. I touched tongues once with my baby brother and gave my 70-year-old grandfather reason to believe I wanted what he did to me. Nothing else could explain it. I always felt what he did to me was my own fault. I can still recall the teacher who took me aside one spring day in the privacy of the coat room to ask, is anything wrong? She said that I had changed. I remember all the pleasure had gone out of learning and school. I stopped showering and brushing my hair regularly. I didn't care if my clothes were dirty or my socks mismatched. Instead of following the math lessons and being the first to raise my hand, my head was full of woolly clouds. I chew my nails and line up the white slivers in the groove of the pencil holder, pretending my nails were sails for boats that would take me away. I would fantasize about a hot air balloon that I hid in the attic. I imagined packing my suitcase with marshmallow fluff sandwiches and a doll for company who had her own little suitcase. The roof would crack open and I would climb into that wicker basket and rise into the sky away from my house. My teacher asked if someone was hurting me, but I had no sense of my body's boundaries and that to trespass them without permission created damage. Even now, I am discovering the extent of the injury. If my grandfather had waited until a year later to start abusing me, once the mandated reporting statutes for suspected child maltreatment took effect, my life would have turned out differently. But at the time, I told my teacher that nothing was wrong, nothing had changed. I didn't want my grandfather to go to jail. He would be so lonely there, and I knew how crushing loneliness was. What I experienced is etched into my psyche. My grandfather's tongue in my mouth, the stubble on his chin, the pad of his index finger stained yellow with nicotine, his jagged thumbnails, the cold stickiness of his groin. There's him lying on top of me, skin to skin, my cheek turned to the side. I know he tried a few times to get inside. I can't scrub some images from my mind the feel of his weight and the odor of him. My body did not want to allow him entry. His insistence, his pushing to try, was painful. I felt the gouging of an already raw wound, the heaviness making it hard for me to breathe. In public, he was always trying to hold my hand and caress my fingers. We must have looked sweet, a loving grandfather with his doting, respectful granddaughter. If they looked closer, they'd have, they'd have seen his long thumbnail that he filed to a point and liked to scrape lightly over my wrist. This is what happened and happened and happened. 
I was seven and he was 70. I was eight and he was 71. I was nine and he was 72. I was 10 and he was 73. I was 11 and he was 74. I was 12 and he was 75. I was 13 and he was 76. As soon as I told my parents what happened, they warned me to keep it quiet. I can forgive this reaction now. They knew a story could destroy you. They had fled the Marcos dictatorship where a petty grievance or accusation could get you assassinated. During a particularly awful summer after I told, my father offered me his own story. As a small boy, he had been sexually coerced by a neighbor in exchange for candy. And he turned out fine, right? Well, what happened, I asked. That's it, my father said. I told you the whole story. But what did the neighbor do exactly, I asked. He gave me the candy, my father said. About 10 years ago, my father pulled out a folder from the gray filing cabinet. This is a copy of a letter I sent to my father years ago, he explained. He read it out loud to me in Tagalog, which I don't understand. I wondered with his third grade education and near illiteracy if my grandfather had read this letter. If not, had one of my relatives read it aloud to him? Or did they spare his feelings and pretend not to know who he really was? My father pointed to a line repeating in Tagalog, this is where I tell him, I know what you did to Gracie, you are dead to me now. With that piece of paper, he killed his own father. I was afraid that my telling would change things, and it did. I've heard whispered stories of who else was abused, but no one has joined me in solidarity. I know I'm not the only one he did this to, but I feel the lonely weight of being the only one so far to speak up. Now that their patriarch is long dead, what are we preserving with our silence? Who is left to protect? Thank you. Thank you, Grace. Um, next is Romeo Oregon. He's the author of The Origin of Butterflies, selected by Kwame uh, Dawes for the African Poetry Book Fund's New Generation African Poets chapbook series. His poems have appeared in Prairie Schooner, Connotation Press, The Dissident Blog, and Brittle Paper. The 2017 winner of the Brunel International African Poetry Prize and the recipient of Anabedi International Writers Residency Fellowship. He is currently a Dubois Fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research, an Artist Protection Fund Fellow, and a Scholar at Risk Fellow at Harvard University. Please welcome Romeo. Good evening. It's um, a privilege to be here. Um, thank you, Amana. And it's also um, beautiful to be here with those fellow writers. Um, first of all, I'd love to um, thank Pen America and also to Karen, who's somewhere in the audience. Um, I'm Nigerian, and I'm from a country where it is a crime to be queer. 
Um, I'm from a country where if you are queer, it means you have to go to jail for 14 years. And to write about AIDS, also promoted in whatsoever way, means you also have to go to jail for 10 years. So to be gay or bi or lesbian or trans, um, and to write about it means you have to go to jail for 24 years. Um, I was still very young when I learned about the law, which was passed in 2014. But before then, uh, my country was colonized by the British, which introduced the law uh, while they were still governing us, which it was, queer, it was a crime to be queer. Um, that law lasted until 2014, where uh, the then president, President Goodluck Jonathan, signed a bill into law and made it a crime to even protest against a law that was made for us to be a crime. Like everyone, we retreated into silence and thought, oh well, I would not be caught. I could love someone in the dark and exist in the dark and survive in the dark, which was what many of us did. During this period, I was working at the Federal Safety Corps, which was a paramilitary organization in Nigeria. And even though one of our duties was also to report to the police what we think um, or if anyone committed a crime, which means if someone is gay or lesbian or bi or trans or intersex, we have to report the person to the police. I thought I could hide and also survive in the dark, which was what I did for a couple of years. In 2016, something happened that changed my life forever. I was working in a town called Ikariakoko in Ondo State in Western Nigeria. Um, two hours from that town was um, Ondo town, which was also a town in Western Nigeria. It was in the evening around 6 p.m. and then we got the news that a man was lynched to death because he was caught in the arms of another man in their own house. Um, what was very scary about that news was the close proximity, first of all, and also about how my colleagues were speaking about the event. It was as if it was right to lynch someone to death. It was as if someone had no right to even love who they want to love. And I couldn't speak, I couldn't say anything because to even speak and say this is who I am was also to land in jail or to beaten to death or something. For the first time in my life, I felt not just what it means to be a crime, but also what it means for your body to be open to danger in a way that leaves you so helpless because you have no right or no power to even fight about this. So I went home that night and um, I wrote a couple of poems about six or eight that became my chat book called The Origin of Butterflies. I'd love to share um, one of those poems with you tonight. This is called How to Survive the Fire. The first rule of survivor is to run. I tell you this to understand how memories are floods drowning a lonely man how the sight of a man born in a park stays with you, his voice becoming yours at night. 
There's no boy hiding in my throat, I tell you the truth. My mouth is clean. But on my tongue are cities where boys are beaten to death. Say Lagos, say Onitsha, say Lafia. Say cities where the only freedom for a man who loves another man is to live. I tell you this to understand my silence, to understand why I crawled into my voice. I do not want to die. There is nowhere safe in the city of mine, and songs of freedom are just what they are. You have to see nails drawing blood from a swollen head before you understand why God turned his face from Christ and whispered, run. This was one of the few poems I wrote when I was trying to interrogate what it means to be queer and Nigerian and to live in a, in a society where your body is criminalized. Um, I tried submitting my poems for a few African um, literary journals and magazines. And most times they were like, um, we love your poems, but can you please submit something else? <laughs> and then I ended up applying for the Brunel Prize in 2017, and I won. And Two days after winning, someone sponsored a hate post against me on Facebook, and it went viral. And three days after that post, I was attacked in Eastern Nigeria, where I was working. Um, I received threats online, um, death threats on blogs. My family was contacted, and, and um, my siblings also received hate messages about being family members to someone who's queer. It was a really trying time for me. Um, one thing I believe in is the, the power to speak my truth, um, the power also to walk my truth. And no matter how difficult it was, I realized how dangerous it was for me to be silent. Because also to be silent means to say, we do not exist. And it means to say, oh, well, we could be hurt, we could be killed, we could be ostracized, and nothing else will happen to us. Um, this is my story, and I love to read a poem from my child book before I leave you. It is called To the Man Who Mocked My Scarred Body. Mala, we drowned in the morning because they set our hair on fire, our tongues was heavy and they laughed and watched us carry home with our lovers on our shoulders while running into water. Because I own no land that owns me, at night I'm not loyal to a city where a man bleeds. I can ask why God's hands are full of dead boys and walk out of a river. In my sleep, I'm always, asked, I'm always talking. My roommate records my voice his pain is a prayer. His phone echoes my voice into heaven. Oh, may this water break me home. Has God seen his lover beating on the street? Oh, may darkness kill hate. Is sugar a cure for the boy dying under my tongue? Who chooses our sadness? Why do the prophet flog me at night? In every city a man hides. Why does the land love the smell of our burning bodies? 
who woke up, who pronounced my name as sin. On the anniversary of our death, I let seven doves out of a cage. We named them home and none returned. I am always crying by the sink. I don't know if it's my body mourning. Can't you see the birds are burning in the sky and there's no one to gather their bones? Oh, lost souls, oh, winds, sing those bodies back to life. Can't you see my hands blackened by burnt feathers? Do not ask questions you already know the answers to. I am haunted and not a boy running into the hands created by God or into a father with a knife hidden under his shirt. Thank you. Um, next, we have Shiori Ito. Um, Shiori is a journalist and award-winning documentary filmmaker from Japan. Based on her own experience of rape, her book, Black Box, reveals the sexism in Japan's society and institutions. In 2018, she won the Freedom of the Press Award given by the Free Press Association of Japan. Ito advocates against gender-based violence throughout the world. Welcome, Ito. Sh uh, Shiori. Hello, uh, my name is Alison Markin-Powell, and I am Shiori-san's translator, and I'm just going to read a very brief passage from her book in Japanese. <laughs>私は息も絶えないに後ろ向きに横たわったまま、バトのことばを探していた。それまでやめてください、とっくり返していたが、それではあまりに弱すぎた。<laughs> たしは父さんに英語で言った。ファックオフ。後になって考えたことだが、これから上司になるはずの山口氏に対し、私はそれまで敬語を使ってた。女性が目上の男性に対して使える対等の抗議の言葉は自然には私の口から出てこなかった。
so my experience of rape, um, like I said, I wish I don't have to stand up in front of you and share my experience. Um, but the reason why I did so is because I just purely had no choice to highlight what is going on in Japan and to to wishing to make some change. Um, I'm a journalist and um, I was quite shocked what kind of society, legally, social-wise, the, the system that I was living. And you know, Japan is such an advanced and developed country, but when it comes to sexual violence law or safety for, especially for women, it's, it's really, I have to say, medieval era-ish, um, because fortunately, um, after I spoke out, um, our rape law has changed, and it took 110 years to change. Before, if you steal something, you would go for jail for five years, and if you rape someone, it was three years. So objects were less than women, I guess. And that has changed. Now um, we made a, a little um, step that the, the victim can be male as well, and the jail sentence can be five years, same as the object. But we still have to make more reformation and more steps, and that is why I'm still standing here today to talk about it. Um, but still, it's, it's, it has been very difficult for me to talk and um, I discovered how difficult it is to talk about it, abuse, sexual abuse in Japan, not only maybe in Japan, but also in the world. Um, and I, my friends from outside of Japan told me that I, I didn't have to do so um, to talk to the public or write a book because, you know, in some country, you can just go to the police and seek for justice. Although, of course, um, sexual crimes are one of the crimes it's very hard to convict or prosecute. Um, but um, the first things I heard from my investigator, police investigator, was that um, these things happen a lot in Japan and they can't do anything about it. So I'm sorry. And that was so shocking. And I think that was the moment that I I got my journalistic, you know, personalities and asking why and why and why and why. And later on, I discovered that um, Japan has highest conviction rate, almost 99.9, like North Korea, because um, apparently um, prosecutor, if they prosecute, they, they should seek for conviction. And if not, then that's sort of the failure for the prosecutor. So the prosecutor are pressuring investigator to not to investigate, especially sexual crime, because it's very hard to investigate. But my case, I have to encourage investigator to um, investigate. And finally, we found a CCTV footage that I was um, dragged into the hotel and um, I was unconscious. And the taxi driver of witness and DNA and the court um, issued arrest warrant but on the day of the arrest, um, the highest Tokyo Metropolitan Police, the highest um, investigator office, they, he stopped it. And we never heard that could happen before. And I still today, I haven't got any answer why. 
um, I even chased this highest, you know, investigator, uh, highest, yeah, investigator. Um, I, I even chased him. I never thought I would chase a policeman <laughs> in my life, and I don't know what I did, but still, I haven't got an answer yet. And, um, well, some people say that because the man I've been accusing of um, was very close to the power. He wrote two books of biography of Prime Minister Abe, and he has very powerful power in the politics world, and that was what he said. He, what he said was that if you say something, you will never win or you will never be believed. And that was what exactly the investigator told me. If you report this, you will never be able to work as a journalist in Japan or you never, maybe your life would be over in Japan. And today still, it's, it's to be honest, I am not native English speaker, but um, speaking in Japanese about this is harder for me. And after I spoke about it, because it is such a hard topic to talk about, I got, um, it, it, it made me very hard to live in Japan and I got um, threat and backlash and now I'm living in London and um, it affected my family as well. But um, I know that, you know, this is not only happening in Japan and I've been thinking about why it has been affecting me and my family and the society uh, for a long time. And um, I discovered that um, I, I believe, you know, sex is our fundamental part of ourselves, it's our identity. And once it's been violated, think as I'm a home, it's like fun foundation of home is is violated and now the people you live together on that in that house it affects them as of the family the community and um, it takes time to be yeah be um, I don't know the word but be yourself again or be your house again because it's so fundamental and I have to say, I've been covering, you know, cocaine store in Peru, and there I thought people would kill me, and that was more scarier than maybe what happened to me one night. But still, this one night incident took it all away from me, my life in Japan, my family, and still, it's it's really hard to talk about it, and um, and I believe that is why rape has been used as a weapon of the war because it can destroy you and your family, your community for a long time. Um, so that is why I'm still speaking today and it had happened to me and I wish I don't have to talk about my past, but for the future, I'm still speaking. Thank you. <clears throat> Next we have Paul Tran. Paul is a recipient of both the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship from Poetry and the Poetry Foundation and the Discovery Poetry Prize from Boston Review. 
They are a poetry editor at The Offing and a Chancellor's Graduate Fellow in the writing program at Washington University in St. Louis. Their work has appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, and Elsewhere. Welcome, Paul. I want to tell you about the wolf, how he pressed a white towel against my face, how it smelled like sugar, how all night the winter air wilted in my lungs, how my phone rang, but I couldn't answer. He nails me down into a bed of thorns, me, shepherd lost in a field of sheep sharpening their fangs like cannibals, me, cursed to cry wolf, no one comes to rescue me, cursed to cry wolf, no one believes me, but I guess, yes. That is the curse of my family, to come from a colonized people never rescued, to come from survivors with no one around to believe them, not my mother, not my father, not this man, this wolf dragging me down his wolf throat, his wolf tongue, telling me to say I like it, to say his name, show him what my mouth can do. But I'm sorry, sir. I don't even know my own name in my mother's language. I don't have the language to tell my mother what you did to me, how you lured me home, how you spiked my drink, how you date raped me, how you filmed my death on your iPhone. But once I ask my mother the Vietnamese word for rape, and she says nothing. She cleans the house, pulls weeds from the garden with her ungloved hands. Once I ask my mother the Vietnamese word for gay, and she calls me a freak of nature. She calls me bede, a curse word French colonizers planted on our tongues to mean faggot, bundles of sticks, flamboyant, always burning. I'm an always burning garden of weeds. Men like you enter ungloved and mistake for paradise. I'm a freak of nature, a curse word sung in my mother's native tongue, whose word for rape is ham heap, to deflower, to be a house. Men like you enter without wiping your your feet at the door to be a house. My mother cleans with sage and bundles of joss to be a house. So overgrown with silence, you mistake me for surrender, but didn't your mother ever teach you that you can't deflower weeds without them resurrecting again and again and again and again? So let me be clear, okay? I don't need you to believe me. I don't need you to rescue me. I will rescue myself from any man who tries to make me a meal for his body. I will chew my way through his stomach. I will gorge myself from his bones. I will peel myself out of his skin. I will return to the world again. I will return to my life again. I come back from death to find a voice, to say your name, tell everyone in this room what you did to me. I come back from death to look you dead in the eye, look you dead, teach you a lesson, teach you that men like you don't own everything they see, teach you exactly what you wanted to know when you asked what that mouth can do. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here to Pen America for this event. Oh, my goodness. I am so, so honored to be here with these readers. Thank you for um, giving this girl who just turned 20 for the seventh time a fabulous birthday party with all these strangers and this free bar in the back. I heard a rumor. Thank you so much. Um, so much of my work comes from being a child who was molested by my father, a South Vietnamese veteran, and told, like many folks on the stage, that I couldn't tell that story 
in fear of the consequence that it would bring to my family. It comes from being a loser high schooler who had a chip on my shoulder, thinking that if I proved myself to be better than those around me, if I could get out of my poverty, if I could just run as far away as I could from home, I could somehow outrun the things that happened to me. I could somehow leave behind the people who did that to me or the things about myself I still did not accept. And it comes from being a college junior the night before my 21st birthday, assaulted by a very wealthy alumni of my university, told by campus safety that I had no evidence to report this case told by my dean, who gave me two pamphlets, one for psychological services, which I understood, and another for time management, because if I didn't finish my courses by the end of the term, I would lose the scholarship that got me there. I would lose pretty much my academic standing. And I thought, well, if I have this potential to lose everything, then there is no consequence for speaking aloud. And maybe poetry, unlike my family, unlike my community, unlike my academic community, will hold the space I need for truth and for justice. And so early on, I thought that the poem could be the place where I re-narrate my life, where I get the justice that I wanted. And so in purpled verse and lyrical confessional poems, I poured evidence of what happened, autobiography, my idiosyncrasies, the particularities of each event. I constructed myself this amazing villain, my rapist, my father, my family's adversity, the fact that we were refugees from Vietnam in a country where we were disenfranchised and were foolish to think justice could come to us anyway. I had amazing enemies in these poems. And I realized after a long time, just like the poem I shared with you now, that they were insufficient for my survival. Because all my life, I've had an enemy. All my life, I had the idea of survival beyond my reach. But did I really want to survive? Would I know how to live if I took the enemy out of the equation and faced the world with just myself, with my own implication in what happened to me, with my own complicity in how the behaviors I've manifested and how the choices I make every day put me in similar reckless situations. And I didn't want to write those poems because there is a way out there where folks are organized into being good survivors and bad survivors. And I had to contend with the fact that maybe I'm a bad survivor. Maybe I continue to ask for things to happen. Maybe I need for myself this enemy in order to organize my life, organize my identity as a victim. What happened if I survive? What happened if tomorrow I get everything I want and all the bad people are put away? Would I really know how to live then? Do I really want that? Obviously, yes. But then what is it within me that continues to fence myself from that? And so the poems now, I hope, do that work, do that work of turning inward, of dealing complexly with what it means to have survived any kind of extremity, how we were participants, me and whoever, me and whatever. And it deals, I think, more complexly with the idea of survival 
what I thought it would look like, what I told it needed to be, and what it might just need to be individually for myself. Um, but nevertheless, I continue to write poems with the kind of triumphant ending that I would one day desire for myself. And a source of great inspiration for me has been this painting called Judith Slaying Holofernes by the artist Artemisia Gentileschi, and it was painted in 1620. And anyone who knows the backstory will know that the figure of this painting, Judith, comes out of the Bible. And one incident in which an Assyrian army pillages her town, she responds by taking her maidservant to the tent of the general of this army and beheads him. That is one context for you. Another, and it is glorious. <laughs> Let's just pause on that. Another context is that the artist, Artemisia Gentileschi, one of the only women artists of her time in the Italian Renaissance, was assaulted by one of her workshop mates. And she was one of the only women of her time to stand trial against this man in open court and to win. And so it's really motivating to me that people across history have found their ways um, to survive and to win. And so this poem is uh, in the voice of Judith. Judith slaying Holofernes. I know better than to leave the house without my good dress, my good knife, like Excalibur between my stone breasts. Mother would have me whipped, would have me kneel on rice until I shrilled so loud I rang the church bells. Didn't I tell you, she'd remind me, that elegance is our revenge, that there are neither victims nor victors, but the bitch we envy in the end. I am that bitch. I am dogged. I am so damn not even death wanted me. He set me back after you sacked my body the way your army sacked my village, stacked our headless idols in the same river where our children impaled themselves on rocks. I exit night. I enter your tent, gilded in this bolt of stubborn sunlight, my sleeves already rolled up. I'll know what they'll say, slut, for showing that much skin, that a reverence for what is seen when I ask to be seen. Look at me. My thigh lifts from your thigh. My mouth spits poison into your mouth. You nasty beauty, I'm no beast, but my maid keeping your blood off me and my good dress as my blade slides clean through your thick neck will be a song the parish sings for centuries. Tell Mary, <laughs> tell Eve, tell Salome and David about me and watch their faces like yours turn green. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, finally, we have uh, Scholastique Mukasonga. Scholastique is a Rwandan author. Her family was displaced within Rwanda during her childhood, and she was later forced to flee to Burundi and then to France, where she settled in 1992. She lost 27 members of her family in the Rwandan genocide. Mukasanga wrote two acclaimed memoirs about her family's experiences, cockroaches and the barefoot woman, 
as well as the novel Our Lady of the Nile, which received the Prix Renaudot. Please welcome Scholastic. Bonsoir tout le monde. Je vous remercie euh, euh, d'être présent. Je remercie Peine de m'avoir permis de rencontrer mes confrères et mes concerts. Quelle richesse. Je m'incline vraiment devant leur force et leur courage. C'est très difficile de prendre la parole après avoir, mais en même temps, j'admire cette force. Euh, ce qui est dit fait peut-être, et si Romain, j'espère, fait moins mal. Ils ont parlé, et je crois, et j'espère, ils ont écrit. Je dis, tous, ils ont craché le venin. Ils vont, je suis optimiste et il faut, faut s'en sortir. Thank you, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for Penn. I am so moved to meet my fellow writers. So much wealth, so much richness, and I really bow in front of your force and your courage. It's so difficult to speak after such an experience, but what is spoken often hurts less. So they have spoken, they have written, they spat their venom, and I am optimistic they will make it. J'ai choisi de partager avec vous un extrait sur la vie d'Inimer qui a été aussi courageuse dans un endroit où on pouvait être désespéré, mais où il a gardé espoir. Et cet espoir a permis, lui a permis de sauver sa fille qui est moi, scolastique, même si les autres sont partis. So I will read you an excerpt of a, of a book, a book about the life of a mother, a mother who was so brave in a place that was full of desperation, but yet she was able to keep hope. And that hope allowed her to save her daughter, which is me. But the others left, perished. Um, uh, avant de passer à la lecture, euh, donc, on était cinq filles de Stéphania et euh, deux garçons. Et des cinq filles de Stéphania, il ne restait que moi et des garçons. Il reste André qui était parti comme moi, par le choix justement de, de nous sauver. So just for context, so there were five girls and Stéphania and there were also two boys. Of, the, of the, the women, I am the only one left of the two boys. There's André is left. He, as I, had, had uh, left the country. Yes, 
Souvent, ma mère s'arrêtait au milieu d'une de ces innombrables tâches qui s'enchaînent tout en long d'une journée d'une Balayer la cour, écosser, trier les haricots, sacrer le sorogo, retourner la terre, déterrer les patates douces et éplucher les bananes avec la cuisson. Et elle nous appelait, nous, les trois cadettes qui étions encore à la maison, ne pas parler les noms qu'on nous avait attribués au baptême, Jeanne et Julienne et Scolastique, mais donnons nos véritables, ce qu'à la naissance nous avait donné notre père et de la signification toujours sujette à l'interprétation, paraissait dessiner notre avenir. Maman nous regardait comme si elle allait nous quitter pour longtemps, comme si elle sortait rarement de l'enclos, ne s'éloignait jamais de son champ, sauf le dimanche pour aller à la messe. Elle se préparait à un long voyage, comme si c'était la dernière fois qu'elle nous voyait, toutes les trois, autour d'elle. Et elle nous disait d'une voix que nous ne lui connaissions pas, comme venir dans notre monde et qui nous pénétrait d'angoisse. Quand je mourrai, quand vous me verrez morte, il faudra recouvrir mon corps. Personne ne doit voir mon corps. Il ne faut pas laisser voir le corps d'une mère. C'est vous, mes filles, qui devez le recouvrir. C'est à vous seuls que cela revient. Personne ne doit voir le cadavre d'une mère. Sinon, cela vous poursuivra, vous rentrera jusqu'à votre propre mort. Ou il vous faudra aussi quelqu'un pour recouvrir votre corps. Ces paroles nous faisaient peur et nous ne comprenions pas. Et aujourd'hui encore, je ne, sais pas, je ne suis pas sûre de les comprendre, mais ils nous glaçaient de terreur. Nous étions persuadés qu'il fallait sans cesse veiller sur maman et nous tenir prêts si la mort brusquement venait la saisir, à la recouvrir de son pagne, afin que nul ne puisse jeter un regard sur son corps sans vie. Et il est vrai que la mort rôdait opiniâtrement autour des portées de Nyamata. Mais il nous semblait à nous, les petites filles, qu'elle menaçait d'abord notre mère, comme le léopard silencieux qui s'avance sur sa proie. Notre angoisse la suivait tout au long de la journée. Maman se, lavait, se levait la première, bien avant notre réveil. Elle faisait d'abord le tour du village et c'est dans l'anxiété que nous attendions son retour, rassurée enfin de l'apercevoir entre les caféiers, se laver les pieds dans l'herbe humide et de rosée. Quand nous allions chercher de l'eau ou du bois, nous disions à celle qui restait à la maison, s'il tout veille bien sur maman. Et nous n'avions au retour le cœur tranquille qu'à la voyage sous le grand manioc, 
entre deux cossés les haricots. Mais le pire, c'était à l'école quand m'envahissaient ces images d'angoisse qui brûlaient la ressource du maître. Le cadavre de maman gisait devant l'hôtel métier où elle avait l'habitude de s'asseoir. Je n'ai pas recouvert de sopagne le corps de ma mère. Personne n'était là pour le recouvrir. Les assassins ont pu s'attarder devant le cadavre que les machettes avaient démembré. Les hyènes et les chiens ivres de sang humain ont pu se repaître de sa chair. Ces pauvres restes se sont confondus dans la pestilence dans l'immense chanier du génocide et peut-être à présent, mais cela aussi, je l'ignore, ne sont-ils dans le chaos dans nos sueurs, cosses parmi les os et crânes parmi les crânes. Maman, je n'étais pas là pour recouvrir ton corps. Et je n'ai pris que des mots, des mots d'une langue que tu ne comprenais pas pour accomplir ce que tu avais demandé. Et je suis seule avec mes pauvres mots et mes phrases. Sur la page du cahier, tisse et le lincel de ton corps absent. read the English translation. Often, in the middle of one of those never-ending chores that fill a woman's day, sweeping the yard, shelling and sorting beans, weeding the sorghum patch, tilling the soil, digging sweet potatoes, peeling and cooking bananas, my mother would pause and call out to us her three youngest daughters, not by our baptismal names, Jeanne, Julienne, Scholastique, but by our real names the ones given us at birth by our father, names whose meaning, always open to interpretation, seem to sketch out our future lives. Mama would give us a lingering stare, as if she were going far away on a long time, as if she who rarely left the enclosure, who never strayed too far from her field, except on Sundays for mass, she were making ready for a great voyage, as if she would never again see the three of us gathered around her. And in a voice that didn't sound like hers, that seemed like something from another world, a voice that filled us with terror, she would say, when I die, when you see me lying dead before you, you'll have to cover my body. No one must see me. A mother's dead body is not to be seen. You'll have to cover me, my daughters. That's your job, and no one else's. No one must see a mother's corpse. Otherwise, it will follow you. It will chase you. It will haunt you until it's your turn to die, when you, too, will need someone to cover your body. Those words frightened us. We didn't understand them. Even today, I'm not sure I understand them, but they sent a chill down our spines. We were convinced we had to keep one eye on Mamad every moment, that we had to be ready should death suddenly take her to cover her with her pagne so no one could glimpse her lifeless body. 
And it's true that death hovered insistently over every deportee in Yamata. But to three little girls, it seemed to threaten our mother most of all, like a silent leopard stalking its prey. All day long, our anxious thoughts stayed close by her side. Mama was always the first one up in the morning, long before the rest of us were awake, to go off for her daily walk around the village. We trembled as we waited for her to come back, relieved when we finally glimpsed her through the coffee plants, washing her feet in the dewy grass. When two of us went to fetch water or wood, we always told the third, whatever you do, keep an eye on Mama. And our hearts knew no peace until we came home and saw her shelling beans under the big manioc. But school days were the worst when my mind filled with horrific pictures that blotted out the teacher's lesson. Pictures of Mama's corpse lying in front of the termite mound she so loved to sit on. I never did cover my mother's body with her pagne. No one was there to cover her. Maybe the murderers lingered over the corpse their machetes had dismembered. Maybe blood-drunk hyenas and dogs fed on her flesh. Her poor remains dissolved into the stench of the genocide's monstrous mass grave. And maybe now, but this too I don't know, maybe now she's deep in the jumble of some ossuary, bones among bones, one skull among others. Mama, I wasn't there to cover your body, and all I have left is words words in a language you didn't understand, to do as you asked. And I'm all alone with my feeble words, and on the pages of my notebook, over and over, my sentences weave a shroud for your missing body. Ma mère n'avait qu'une idée en tête, le même projet pour chaque jour, qu'une seule raison de survivre, sauver ses enfants. Pour cela, elle élaborait toutes les stratégies, expérimentait toutes les tactiques. Il fallait fuir, il fallait se cacher. Évidemment, le mieux était de fuir et de se dissimuler dans les épées foulées d'épinés qui bordait notre champ. Encore fallait-il en avoir le temps. Maman était sans cesse les bruits. Depuis le jour où Maggie, on avait brûlé notre maison, où elle avait entendu cette humeur de haine, comme le bourdonnement d'un monstrueux essaim qui montait vers nous, elle avait, me semblait-il, développé un sixième sens. Celui de la proie toujours sur le qui-vive. Elle savait repérer de très loin le bruit des bottes sur la piste. Écoutez, disait-elle, les voilà encore. Nous tendions l'oreille. Il n'y avait que les bruits familiers de voisinage, le bruissement habituel de la savane. Ils arrivent, répétait ma mère. Courez vite et vous cachez. Et souvent, il n'avait que le temps de nous faire le signe. 
nous nous précipitions sous le couvert de buisseaux. Et peu de temps après, nous apercevions de notre cachette la patrouille au bout de la piste. Et nous nous demandions en tremblant si elle allait entrer dans notre maison, saccager et piller nos pauvres biens, les quelques paniers de sorgho ou de haricots, les quelques épis de maïs que nous avions eu l'imprudence de mettre en réserve. Mais il fallait tout prévoir. Parfois, les soldats pouvaient surgir plus rapidement que nous l'avions détecté. Lui, pourtant, raffiné de ma mère. Aussi, pour le cas où nous n'aurions pas le temps d'atteindre la brousse, elle avait laissé au milieu des cultures de grandes touffes de végétation sauvage, un tas d'herbes sèches, un buisson inextricable, où nous seules, les petites filles, nous pouvions nous brotter pendant l'alerte. Dans la brousse, elle avait repéré les cachettes qui lui semblaient les plus sûres. Elle avait remarqué les profonds terriers que creusaient les fourmis. Elle était persuadée que nous pourrions nous y glisser et au besoin, avec l'aide d'Antoine, elle en élargissait la galerie dont elle camouflait l'entrée dans un amas d'herbes et de branchage. Jeanne se faisait encore plus menue pour se couler à l'intérieur de la tanière du fourmilier. Malgré les conseils et les encouragements de ma mère, elle n'y réussissait pas toujours. Un peu inquiète, je demandais à Stéphania ce qui arriverait car le fourmilier voudrait rentrer chez lui. J'ai oublié ce qu'il m'a répondu. Maman ne laissait rien au hasard. Souvent à la tombée de la nuit, elle procédait à une répétition générale. Aussi, nous savions exactement comment il fallait pénétrer dans l'eau fourrée d'épinée, comment nous devions nous enfouir sous l'herbe sèche. Même dans l'affolement que nous causait le piétinement des bottes sur la piste, nous nous dirigions sans nous tromper le vélo détaillé et le terrier. Et selon les directives de maman, nous avions appris à nous tapir. Les cases de déplacement n'avaient qu'une seule porte qui donnait sur la piste. Pour faciliter notre fuite, maman en ouvrit une autre qui donnait du côté des champs et de la brousse. Mais cette porte, plus ou moins dérobée, comme les cachets de broussailles qu'elle avait aménagées, nous fit bientôt plus d'aucune utilité. Après avoir repoussé grâce aux hélicoptères la malheureuse incrucio des Ignenzi, des réfugiés tous venus du Burundi, les militaires du cadre de Gako ne redoutaient ni attaque ni embuscade. Ils osaient quitter la piste, que jusque-là ils s'étaient contentés de suivre et patrouiller sans peur sans peur à travers la brousse, jusqu'à la frontière du Burundi. Désormais, le danger pouvait surgir aussi bien de la piste que de la brousse, et nos cachettes épinaises n'étaient plus sur le refuge inexpugnable qui rassurait ma mère. Aussi, essayait-elle de nous aménager des cages 
à l'intérieur même de la maison. Elle disposa contre les mille de fourchis de grands criches, de grands paniers presque aussi hauts que des greniers derrière lesquels Julien et Jeanne pouvaient se glisser si les soldats faisaient éruption. Moi, j'étais trop grande pour me faufiler à l'abri des paniers, des pinces noires de criches ou des garbes élégants de paniers. Je n'avais d'autres ressources que de me jeter sous le lit des parents. Ces cachettes étaient surtout là pour nous rassurer, car elles ne pouvaient tromper personne, et surtout pas les militaires qui avaient vite fait de nous dénicher à coups de pied en nous traitant de cafards ou de petits serpents. Maman n'était jamais satisfaite de ses plans de survie. Elle pensait sans cesse à améliorer ses camouflages, à nous ménager d'autres refuges, mais au fond d'elle-même. Elle savait bien que le seul asile qui pouvait garantir notre survie c'était de franchir la frontière, de partir au Burundi, comme on l'avait fait déjà tant de Tutsi. Pour autant, cet exil ne l'envisageait jamais pour elle-même. Ni mon père, ni ma mère ne songeaient jamais à s'exiler. Je crois qu'ils avaient choisi de mourir au Rwanda. Ils s'y feraient tuer, ils se laisseraient assassiner. Mais les enfants, eux, devraient survivre. My mother had only one thought in her head, one single project, day in and day out, one sole reason to go on surviving, saving her children. For that, she tried every possible tactic, devised every conceivable stratagem. We needed some way to flee. We needed some place to hide. The best thing, obviously, was to take cover in the dense bramble thickets that bordered our field. But for that, we'd need time. Mama was forever on guard, constantly listening for noises. Ever since the day when they burned our house in Maggie, when she first heard that dull roar of hatred, like a monstrous beehive's hum racing toward us, I think she developed a sixth sense, the sense of an animal forever on the lookout for predators. She could make out the faintest, most faraway sound of boots on the road. Listen, she would say, they're back. We listened intently. We heard only the familiar sounds of the neighbors, the usual rustles of the savannah. They're back my mother said again, quick, run and hide. Often, she only had time to give us a sign. We scrambled under the bushes, and a moment later, peering out from our hiding place, we saw the patrol at the end of the road, and we trembled as we wondered if they'd break into our house, ravage and steal our meager belongings, our few baskets of sorghum or beans, the few ears of corn we'd been foolish enough to put by. But we had to be ready for anything. Sometimes the soldiers were too quick even for my mother's sharp ear. And so, for those times when we wouldn't be able to reach the brush, she had left armloads of wild grass in the middle of the field, 
mounds just big enough for her three little girls to slip into when the alarm was sounded. She kept a mental catalog of what she thought would be the safest hiding places in the bush. She discovered the deep burrows dug by the anteaters. She was convinced we could slither into them. And so, with Antoine's help, she widened the tunnels and camouflaged the entrances under piles of grasses and branches. Jeanne made herself even tinier than she was to wiggle into the anteater's lair. Sometimes, despite all my mother's advice and encouragement, Jeanne couldn't quite make it. A little concerned, I asked Stefania what would happen when the anteater wanted to come home. I've forgotten her answer. Mama left nothing to chance. Often, as night fell, she called a dress rehearsal, and so we knew exactly how to scurry into the brambles, how to dive under the dried grasses. Even in our panic at hearing the boots on a dirt road, we scurried straight for the thickets or burrows where Mama had taught us to lie low. The displaced family's huts had only one door which opened onto the road. To ease our escape, Mama cut her second way out, opening onto the field into the bush. But soon, that back door, more or less concealed like the hiding places she'd made in the brambles, was of no use at all. Once, with helicopters to help them, they'd beaten back the ill-fated Inyanzi offensive launched from Burundi by Tutsi refugees. The soldiers of the Gako camp lost all fear of ambushes and attacks. No more did they keep to the dirt road they'd always carefully followed. Now, their patrols trampled freely across country, all the way to the Burundi border. Now, danger could just as well burst from the bush as come down the road. No more were our thorny hiding places, the impregnable refuges my mother found so reassuring. And so, she set about making hiding places inside the house itself. Against the mud walls, she stacked big urns and baskets, almost as tall as grain bins, for Julienne and Jeanne to crawl behind if the soldiers burst in. I was already too big to squeeze into the shelters of the urns' black bellies, or the basket's elegant curves. My only recourse was to dive under my parents' bed. Those hiding places were meant more to comfort us than anything else, because they never fooled anyone, least of all the soldiers who flushed us out in no time with vigorous kicks, all the while calling us cockroaches or little snakes. Mama was never satisfied with her survival strategies. She was forever coming up with improvements to her camouflage, forever finding new refuges for her children. But deep down, she knew there was only one sanctuary, only one way we could ensure our survival, crossing the border, leaving for Burundi, as so many Tutsis already had. But she never once thought of taking that way out herself. Neither my father nor my mother ever considered going into exile. I think they'd made up their minds to die in Rwanda. They would wait there to be killed. They would let themselves be murdered. But the children had to survive. Thank you so much. Um, I think we would 
we'd plan to have a very brief Q&A at the end of the readings, but I believe, sadly, we've run out of time. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much to all the writers who so bravely shared their stories with us this evening. Um, I think I speak for everyone here when I say we've been deeply inspired by your courage, and I think we really owe you all a huge debt of gratitude for your work, um, especially you know, given just the, the, the cost of speaking out and, and uh, just what's at stake when you, when you tell your story. So thank you so much, all of you, and thank you to the audience for, for joining us this evening, and to PEN America for organizing this. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for coming to Penn World Voices here at Subculture. We do have an evening show coming up, so we do need to clear the house. And we'll be doing book signing and meet and greet and all that fun stuff upstairs in the lobby. So please make your way upstairs to the lobby and perhaps come back down for an improv comedy show if you want. Thank you.